6.09 on the morning news with Parliament set to return in just over a week. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has hunkered down with his cabinet for a second day to hammer out the government's next steps for COVID-19 ahead of the throne speech. To discuss, we're joined by Mercedes Stevenson, Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief and host of the West Block. Good morning to you, Mercedes. Good morning. How are you? Good. Thank you for taking the time with us this morning. What can you tell us uh, about this retreat and what has been accomplished and uh, what some of the major points have been on the agenda? So this retreat is all about trying to figure out how to handle what's coming for the government. And that is everything from the throne speech that they will deliver uh, basically a week from today, uh, as well as the fall session. So they've been talking to experts on COVID-19, like Dr. Theresa Tam. They've been talking strategy of uh, where they want to go with the throne speech and what they want to talk about. This is following, by the way, um, days and days of intense consultations with ministers, with caucus, uh, with liberals across the country, as well as a lot of polling to try to figure out what goes in there. And what they're really going to be concentrating on is trying to get Canada through the next wave of the pandemic, um, as well as be beginning a recovery. But all my liberal sources say that at this point, especially with the rising numbers, they're focusing much more on that immediate term reaction, both health-wise uh, and in terms of economic supports, to react to that second wave rather than to get heavy duty into an economic strategy going forward. But all of that is still being talked about and debated inside the caucus as they figure out how to deal with this. A couple of other big items on the agenda too, including those tariffs against the U.S., which are coming tomorrow and China. They had uh, experts in who they were hearing from on that as well. And let's face it, Mercedes, I mean, satisfying Canadians has got to be high on the agenda in terms of hoping that the other parties don't band together to try and topple the government and, and you know, end up with an election early. So is, is that something that they're also trying to make sure that they can find a way to please the majority? Well, the Liberals are saying that they don't want a full election, and they've said this a few times. Uh, After watching what happened with Blaine Higgs in New Brunswick Mm -hmm. last night where there was an election, I'm not sure they'll be as worried. Uh, This is an incumbent government that was re-elected with a majority, which was an endorsement of people saying that they liked the way that Blaine Higgs handled COVID-19. Now, keep in mind. New Brunswick a little different because they closed the borders early and it had very low case and transmission rates. Um, So it it is a very unique example in that sense. But it is proof that an incumbent government can go to the polls. In that case, the government took itself out and said, we're going to go seek a majority. And they found out voters did not punish them for that decision, Mm. for having uh, an election during a pandemic. That may embolden the Liberals a little bit more with what they choose to put in this plan, that if they end up going to the polls, doesn't mean that they are going to lose government or that they could not potentially get a majority. But they've been polling heavily to see what people want in this speech. Uh, and there's been back and forth inside cabinet. You know, a lot of folks, you heard from the prime minister, have said they think that this is the time for transformative change. You're going to see things like money for child care, money for health care, potentially universal basic income. How far do they and can they want to go with some of these big social programs they're looking at bringing in when the reality is that they are also, uh, you know, over a trillion dollars in debt. 
So there's there's sort of that discussion that's happening behind the scenes too. Those inside cabinet who are saying now is the time to seize the day and transform things we don't like, and others who are saying yes, but we can't be seen to be taking advantage of a pandemic. And a great example of that is that we had multiple sources telling us there was a memo to cabinet being prepared that would have put forward for a hundred billion dollars in green spending. The government has pulled back from that. Mm-hmm. Others in cabinet saying we just can't do that right now. People will see it as the government pushing its own agenda through uh, at a time when the money needs to be focused on Canadians. So we'll, we'll have some green elements for a green recovery, potentially including more expensive fuel, but we're not going to go that far right now. Of course, all eyes, as mentioned, just over a week on the 23rd of September uh, for the speech. I'm wondering, uh, you know, how much further down the line or what kind of a timeline are we looking at when it comes to the WE investigation? Because I know that hasn't gone away, although Bill Morneau is not uh, a part of the team anymore. No. So as soon as Parliament reconvenes, those committees can reconstitute and begin their hearings again. So as of next week, that could be back on the agenda. Mercedes, I want to just jump back to uh, you mentioned universal basic income. How likely is that to be part of the throne speech? I mean, it's something that's being tossed around a lot lately. But is that something that Canadians would have an appetite for? Because likely it means an increase in taxes to pay for it. Well, that's the question, and the government has said over and over they will not increase taxes, and I have had very senior government sources tell me that, um, that whatever money they spend, they believe will get people back into the economy. They're going to focus a lot of money in particular on trying to get uh, low-income women back into the economy through things like childcare. They think that growth will offset what they're spending, um, and there are, are economists who say that's possible. Others say you don't know what's going to happen with the economy. could be challenging. So I don't think that at this point they're eyeing a tax increase for the average Canadian. That said, they've talked about taxing the wealthiest Canadians before. Uh, Universal basic income is something that some folks will certainly have an appetite for following the pandemic because it does ensure some kind of an income. And there were people who were lost, left uh, really struggling and in between sort of the cracks. On the other hand, it is a lot, a lot of money to do something like that. Uh, But this government has largely been propped up by the NDP, and that is the kind of thing that the NDP would support. Um, So all of those calculations are going into it, too. I don't know if it'll make it into the throne seat, but it certainly at this point is emerging as a priority for them in the discussion. Another thing, Mercedes, that's been lingering for the past, it seems like, several months is uh, the aluminum tariffs and apparently uh, the federal uh, government looking to announce retaliation. Do we know what that retaliation might be at this point? We think we're going to hear some more about it today. Uh, We're expecting Christian Freeland to have something to say to us about that. Uh, Last time it was kind of a tit-for-tat thing where they picked American goods in particular from areas that were Republican. Um, So we might see something like that again, where they're really putting the pressure on on Donald Trump. But uh, we will know more details likely later today. Well, it's an interesting discussion. There's lots going on. I no doubt know we'll talk to you, especially uh, more about the throne speech. Thank you for always joining us. Appreciate your time. Thanks, guys. That's Mercedes Stevenson, Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief and host of the West Block. It's got to be an interesting uh, dynamic. People have been hit hard in this nation. That's absolutely no secret, even before the pandemic. Mm-hmm. It's not like the economy was clicking along and it was the uh, best of times for Canadians. So that delicate balance, if you're the Liberals, to give those people who will cast their vote for you whenever that may be, um, you know, reason to do it. But those other people, 
uh, and even the moderates to say, when does this spending end? Yeah. Um, you know, but I think there's going to be a lot of bucks announced in that throne speech. And, you know, I found it interesting that Mercedes was saying, you know, with the the um, Conservatives being elected as a majority in New Brunswick, yeah. I was thinking that would frighten the Liberals a little bit yeah. because the Conservatives took full power and took it away from the minority that was being propped up by the Liberal government in that province. But no, she looks at it the other way as, you know, that could the embolden the, the incumbent. Yeah, and that that could change things as they, you know, really think about whether Canadians really have an appetite for an election. Well, but I, I think, and I mean, I, I didn't know the man, but Aaron O'Toole, what he's been doing is exactly what he said. People have to know, and, and the party said this, and we talked to analysts who said people have to get to know this guy. Right. And I think the more you get to know the guy, he's been saying the right things as far as I'm concerned. That could be a threat to the liberal government. Uh, if they if they wait and wait and wait, so many unknowns. You just it's one of those it's things. Exciting it's, yeah, to a certain extent. It kind of is, isn't isn't it for sure? Uh, hey, just want to uh, before we go to traffic. Uh, just this got texted. I'm not sure if we'll have this on our traffic report, but it looks like we do have a crash on Deerfoot Trail southbound, south of Seton, right around Heritage Point. So a heads up there. Time now for helicopter traffic for West District by Truman. Enjoy spectacular views of the city skyline and the Rocky Mountains. Well, when last we checked in with Ian Anderson, president and CEO of Trans Mountain, construction on the Trans Mountain pipeline was underway, moving well, helping get Alberta oil to tidewater, perhaps finally. And joining us with an update on the progress now is Ian Anderson. Hi, Ian. Thanks for joining us. Good morning, Sue. Pleasure to chat with you. How are things going? We're a year in now and uh, things moving well? Yeah, they're they're going really, really well. Um, you know, we got through this this heat of the pandemic, you know, uh, period really well. The pipeline stayed full every day. Uh, we moved actually record volumes this past August as, as demand came back and as we finished some upgrades on the system. And, and we've continued, as you say, work on the project for the last year since we got restarted. And we're, we've now got about 5,000 people working out in the field and in the offices, we're about 15% overall complete, and uh, we're working in virtually all areas of Alberta and uh, and in a good part of uh, BC, principally in the Lower Mainland, uh, the North Thompson, and in and around Kamloops. Ian, you mentioned it made it through the heat of the pandemic. I'm wondering, we know what a regular office would look like with protocols in place. When it comes to a pipeline, tell us how it looks differently and, and how much of an impact that had on, on the progress. Yeah, it, it, uh, it, we went through a period of adjustment, I would say, for the first several weeks to get our work sites oriented for, for the new procedures, the new protocols, and the new testing, and the new, uh, you know, personal protective equipment, et cetera. That took a two- or three-week period, I'd say, to work the kinks out, but our contractors were exceptionally focused, just as we were, to make sure our works, workplaces stay safe. I've got about 25 30% people back to the office now, um, and, you know, protocols are being adhered to very, very carefully. We've had no uh, COVID infections in our workplace. We had several of our workers who've contracted COVID outside the workplace, but uh, there's been no worksite infection. So when you think about the, you know, the period of time we've been working in multiple locations with people coming and going and contractors and vehicles, uh, it's quite a testament to the the efforts we put in place. Mm-hmm. Ian, you know, we've we talked about it for so long and, and we're hoping that it would get going again and there were so many roadblocks. And now that it's finally moving again, can you remind us about the expansion project itself, what it looks like and what it will look like upon completion? Sure. We're... 
completing the twinning of the line that goes from Edmonton to Burnaby. We're reconstructing our dock facility in Burnaby from a, a single dock today to a, a, a three-berth dock that will be completed uh, with, with the pipeline completion uh, nearer about the end of 2022. We're still on track to complete in 2022. We're going to go from 300,000 barrels a day up to 890,000 barrels a day. Over 700,000 barrels of those barrels are committed long-term contracts for 20 years uh, with uh, with Canadian producers. So it's uh, it's it's a it's a large project, as you say, Sue. We've been talking about it for years, and we've been uh, you know started and stopped a few times. But the last year, we've really seen uh, you know what I like to call the problems we want to solve, which are the problems in the field with construction and execution, dealing with local communities. You know, we've got, uh, you know, millions of dollars of commitments to local communities to improve their places and, and, uh, and their areas. So it's a, it's a great boon. We've got 10% Indigenous population working on the project. 10% of the contracts that we've issued so far have gone to Indigenous contractors. So there's a huge uh, economic impact for those communities as well. And I believe you mentioned 5,000 jobs right now in the field. Is that correct? Yeah, we've got 5,000 okay. people working right now. We've hired over 6,000 people. Some of them have come and gone over, over the passage of time, but we've got 5,000 people working mostly in uh, Alberta mm-hmm. in spread one and two, which is kind of Edmonton and west of Edmonton, in the lower mainland and Burnaby at our, at our facility there, and increasing numbers in the North Thompson working in uh, the interior of BC around Belmont and Clearwater. We've got probably uh, 500, 600 people there working. Kamloops, another couple hundred. Are you expecting that same level of staffing straight through till uh, the end of 2022, or does it uh, peter off or change uh, whatsoever? You know, it, it peaks and valleys a wee bit depending upon the season and the type of work. We're, we're ramped up fairly high right now because we're doing lots of right-of-way preparation. Uh, we want to get the right-of-way prepared for pipelining really uh, next spring. So lots of work clearing trees, creating access, uh, uh, etc. So we'll be at 5,000 probably well into the fall, into early winter. It may drop off a wee bit over the winter months and then really come back probably north of 5,000 uh, next spring uh, throughout next, uh, next summer and next fall. As we all remember, the federal government ended up purchasing this project to make sure that it went through and with 156 conditions being enforced by the Canada Energy Regulator. Is there continued talk or is that just something that's off to the side for everybody involved with this project about what might happen in the future? Will it be sold to some Indigenous groups? That's always been a conversation. What does that look like? Do you know? Yeah, it's a great question, Sue, and I don't, I don't know yet what that's going to look like. I think most certainly this federal government is committed to some form of Indigenous participation in this company going forward, what that looks like and with which group, at which point in time, um, I'm not sure yet. Uh, time will tell. I know there's various groups who have expressed interest. And I think there is overwhelming support within Indigenous communities to be a part of this asset and be a part of this company and its, its great future. So I think that's definitely a part of it. I think those discussions are ongoing. As far as, you know, where, what the overall ownership structure looks like, I think we're all really focused on executing on the project, completing that. That's when the company will have its highest value, you know, when completion is either at or near, uh, you know, um, the timing and, and its inevitability is, is well established. That's when, you know, I think the company is probably most apt to be, uh, to be part of a transaction. So I don't expect that to be for a couple of years yet.
Ian, words are one thing, uh, but, uh, you know, I think uh, the actions and the product at the end, uh, another. You mentioned 700,000 barrels, a contract for 20 years when everything goes online in 2022. To me, that uh, tells me that the oil industry and the energy industry is still alive and well. I, I think it really is. You know, it's tremendously resilient. Uh, we've had to be resilient, obviously, over the years. I think producers find ways to, um, to you know, uh, deal with their cost structures under different uh, pricing regimes. I think that we'll see demand come back. We've already seen it come back in our pipeline in the last two or three months. Uh, so I'm confident that, you know, uh, very, very uh, responsible Canadian resource development is, is going to be part of our futures for uh, a good period of time forward. And, and we're really looking forward to completing this project, uh, as I said, at the end of 22, to, to bring that on stream, to give our, our customers, our producers, access to world markets and better pricing, all of which will improve their own economics for production. Ian, I know this has been your baby for some time. I remember chatting with you, uh, you know, while the protests and everything was still going on and it was, wasn't sure whether it was going to be a project that did move ahead. So again, you know, talk to us about why it is so vital to Alberta's economy. What does this mean going forward for the next number and number of years? Well, I, I think I touched on, on the first element will be providing uh, significant volumes into world market pricing. Uh, that's what really, you know, Canadian producers have long desired. We've had our dock facility in Burnaby there for 60 years providing, you know, small volumes into world markets, but getting a meaningful supply source into, uh, in, into global markets will increase pricing for everybody. Uh, whether they're moving it offshore or not. So, so that's really the first benefit. That will attract more investment. Obviously, there's the revenue impact of construction and operations. You know, we calculate that it's between 45 and $50 billion of economic activity for the nation, you know, over the life of the project. Uh, there's, there's, you know, 20, $25 million paid in property taxes today in BC. That will double. Uh, similarly, in Alberta, property taxes that we pay into municipalities will double. Um, we're going to be, you know, increasing our, our the scale of our operation alone from a company that has a, a cash flow of $180 million a year up to $1.5 billion a year. All of that's going to be going into, you know, capital projects in the future and uh, and more contracting. So. Uh, we're going we're gonna to invest half a billion dollars into Indigenous communities directly on top of the contracts. So there, there are many, many economic benefits, not just royalties and taxes to government, but actually true you know, jobs and contracts. The number of local contractors we've got working on this project is a staggering list. And that's you know, mom-and-pop operations in, in the North Thompson or in Kamloops are providing all kinds of service to us that are keeping their livelihoods healthy. Sounds, sounds uh, very optimistic and uh, happy to hear. Thanks for the update, Ian. You bet, Andrew. Thanks for having me. That is Ian Anderson, President and CEO of Trans Mountain. It's 718 helicopter traffic time for West District by Truman, a community connected to its city. 
Tow trucks are helping to clear a collision from southbound Deerfoot Trail after Dunbow Road. So if you're leaving the city south towards Okotoks or High River, we want to add a couple of extra minutes. Deerfoot Trail northbound, just some steady building volume as you make your way up towards Anderson Road and Southland Drive. Southbound Deerfoot out of the northeast, you've got a nine-minute drive from the QE2 down towards Memorial. Over on the west side of the city, Crochelle Trail southbound lanes are moving quite smoothly down towards the Bow River. Northbound, you do have that ongoing construction at 24th Avenue Northwest with a right lane closure in effect. And paving continues on North Mound Drive. And today it's at Charleswood Drive. We're going to find traffic down to a single lane, both east and westbound. At Save on Foods, try Western family items at amazing value with quality that rivals the national brands with a full money back guarantee. For the 770 CHQR Traffic Helicopter, I'm Brady Howard. 842 and normally we speak to Danielle Smith in this segment brought to you by Jamin Built building resort style bungalows in the exclusive community of Riversong and Cochrane. Of course Danielle's show coming up in about 45 minutes at 9:30. According to a new study, only 52% of Canadians feel their employer is prepared to open safely following a closure during the pandemic. So how do you feel about going back to the office? To share some insight about how employees are feeling about returning to work in our city and how the changes during the coronavirus crisis may be sticking around, we are joined by Patricia Kaiser, VP of Corporate Development with Bowen Group, a recruiter and contractor management firm. Good morning to you, Patricia. Good morning. That stat isn't so rosy from a recent Salesforce Canada survey, certainly making it sound like a, a good portion of Canadians are concerned about heading back to the office. What are you hearing from your clients here in Calgary? Yeah, I mean, we're certainly seeing through our clients, uh, it's a mix. I would say that um, people were rushed home unexpectedly, mm-hmm. and uh, employers have had a lot of time now to um, kind of settle in, and uh, they're taking their time to develop those policies and procedures to bring their employees back safely. I think, um, you know, our clients, it, it's from one end of the uh, spectrum to the other Uh, we've got you know employers who thought that they would be returning their workers in September and with school you know uh, now underway and the flu season upon us um, they are saying no no we're going to leave our workers staying at home we've got some clients that have sort of a hybrid approach where they're allowing their employees to come in but I think employees right now are telling us that they really want the assurances from from their employers that 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 safety precautions, the sanitary procedures, you know, things like wearing masks when moving, um, you know, are in place so that they can return with that feeling of security. And Patricia, do you know is the city involved with talking to all the businesses and making sure that they understand what the protocols are and and how to bring people back in, et cetera? Is that how it works? So here's here's one of the, the, I would say, the real positives that have come out of this crazy time that we're all living in. People are really sharing what's working, what they're doing, what they're learning. It's everything from uh, when the government uh, rolled out their their SUS and their um, CERB programs. It was a lot of uncertainty. People spent a lot of time learning and then sharing. I was just speaking with the interim CEO of the Chamber of Commerce same thing. They're reaching out to employers to find out what's going on. Even within Bowen, um, we formalized a very thorough work from home policy and then shared it with our clients. So I think people are learning from one another. Mm-hmm. Tricia, you know, what areas of the economy and businesses are you uh, uh, folks at uh, Bowen Group seeing as fruitful? I, I guess what I'm asking is where are there currently opportunities uh, for people on the job hunt? 
Yeah. So a couple of, couple of points there. First of all, I would say um, over the last four to six weeks, we have become very busy, and that's a good news statement for everybody. Uh, I think uh, all things tech-related um, are in demand. So we're doing an awful lot of work right now with companies um, in their IT sector. Um, and uh, just a little data point on the side, um, I was talking with uh, one of our commercial realtor clients, and he had indicated that 300,000 square feet of absorbed space downtown has been uh, taken up by, by tech-related companies. Mm-hmm. So that, that's great news. Yeah. We're also seeing um, a lot of field operations staff in oil and gas companies. These are the folks that were put on temporary layoff in the early days back in March. Um, They are now returning to work, so that's excellent. Uh, And I would say business critical roles for us um, are in demand. So those are HR and finance, um, regulatory and legal. And and I I think that the last area that we're seeing, and it's a great statement, is diversity. People are really, employers are coming to us and they're asking for young folks. So yay for our students um, Mm -hmm. that might not be feeling so optimistic about their future. They're asking for women um, and ethnic diversity. Patricia, would you say then, you know, if, if folks are out there, they're they're looking for work, and let's face it, there are a lot of Calgarians and even just across the province looking for work. What would you say are some of the key things that you need to have tops on your resume? Is flexibility and adaptability, would that be something you'd really point out in a time like this? Yeah, you know, so, so there are a lot of people looking for work, and the first thing I would say is... Um, be resilient. Really, really don't get fatigued on the job search because it will come. Um, top, top soft skills. Um, we're seeing a lot of employers. Yes, they're looking for hard skills. They want, you know, whatever it is, the discipline that they're looking for to be top notch. But they're also wanting um, the employees of, of tomorrow to be able to demonstrate emotional intelligence. They want people who um, can critically think and, and to be creative, to think outside of the box. Um, certainly collaboration is key these days. So I think for, um, you know, individuals who are looking for work, get online, see if there's any kind of training that you can do to really sharpen those soft skills. Thanks for your time this morning, Patricia. Thank you very much. Have a great day. You too. That is Patricia Kaiser, VP of Corporate Development, The Bowen Group. It's 847. It's time for helicopter traffic and it's brought to you by Southland. I know it's brought to you by West District by Truman. Life happens at hellowestdistrict.com. Looks like paving is continuing on 64th Avenue through the northwest part of the city. We're seeing delays in both directions between 4th Street Northeast and 4th Street Northwest. McKnight Boulevard's a great alternate route, though. Deerfoot Trail southbound, a nine-minute drive off the QE2 down towards Memorial. Northbound lanes out of the southeast still experiencing a slight slowdown between Douglasdale Boulevard and Southland Drive. McLeod Trail, northbound lanes are a little bit slow approaching Sun Valley Boulevard just from ongoing construction. Uh, But once you pass that point, it's a clear shot all the way into the downtown core and also through the southeast watch for a collision just getting cleared up at Farrell Road and Fairmount Drive. It's the all-in clear out sales event at Nissan. Get finance rates as low as 0% for up to 84 months on select 2020 Rogue models. Visit Nissan.ca. For the 770CHQR traffic helicopter, I'm Brady Howard. Eight ten. It is the morning news right here on seven seventy CHQR with Sudiel. My name is Andrew Schultz. Uh, this is a very interesting one. You'll want to be sure to tune in just before eight thirty. How would you like to go high into the mountains 
rolling through beautiful scenery, who writes this stuff, while feeling really relaxed, if not a bit peckish. I did not write this one. Oh. Well, we'll learn about cannabis tourism. That's at 8.19 this morning and uh, ahead in one minute. As kids head back to school, many will experience bullying. We talked to one of Canada's, or Calgary's rather, biggest anti-bullying advocates ahead. It's not 4.20, but it is 8.11. <laughs> Time for helicopter traffic for West District by Truman. You will find a home that fits your lifestyle. Still seeing delays on northbound Deerfoot starting around 130th Avenue up towards Southland Drive. From that point, though, traffic's wide open towards uh, Memorial Drive. Southbound lanes of Deerfoot still sitting at about 9 or 10 minutes off the QE2 down towards Memorial. Over in the southeast, we are getting reports of a collision involving a pedestrian at Farrell Road and Fairmount Drive. So watch for crews on scene for that one. And over in the northwest, it uh, looks like the link closures have started up on North Mount Drive at Charleswood Drive. It's for some repair work, so traffic's down to a single lane in both directions throughout the day. Calgary moved to TELUS and get 227% faster download speeds than Shaw's Freedom Network based on open signal independent analysis. Visit telus.com network. For the 770 CHQR traffic helicopter, I'm Freddie Howard. On the heels of World Suicide Prevention Day last week, we thought it was a good time to catch up with anti-bullying advocate and former Calgary Stampeder Randy Chevrier. Good morning to you, Randy. Good morning, Sue and Andrew. How are you today? Good. Thank you for taking the time. Now, Randy, the kids are back in school. Stress and anxiety are present with uh, certainly a different look to school this year. And although it's a different feel, anytime we get kids together, the possibility of bullying is real. I guess what I'm getting at, Randy, is uh, just because there's a pandemic and things are different, bullying isn't taking a break, is it? No, I don't think so. Um, even in the last several months, um, with uh, with many kids being... Uh, I guess, or everyone being kind of stuck at home, uh, for lack of a better term, um, you know, definitely there was uh, there's a higher reliance upon technology to connect with the world, and uh, because of those um, uh, sorts of behavior changes, uh, you know, uh, there may have as well been a shift to the online world, which was a problem before the pandemic. But uh, you know, with with, with uh, more reliance on those technologies, uh, they're definitely. Um, is is uh, it, it, the, the problem persists and kind of just kind of finds its way to a new uh, avenue. Randy, we heard the case of a 15-year-old Chestermere girl recently who committed suicide because of bullying, and her family is speaking out about it. So, what can we do as parents? What do we need to do? Do we do we just sit down and talk to our kids, and, and what are we supposed to say to them? Yeah, well, well, we have to develop those open lines of communication with our kids because we want them to tell us what's going on, and it's hard. Uh, you know, when kids be, I'm, I'm, I'm dealing with a teenager now. You know, my my son is is a teenager, and uh, at this point, he already knows everything that there is to know about the world, and 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 to kind of peel back the layers and and talk about what's going on, it's tough, and. Um, it, it, it really is interesting because, uh, like, if I take it to my son, yesterday we had a little bit of conflict after school, and, and um, you know, it, it wasn't fun. Uh, it's never fun being in conflict, and then it kind of shapes the way your day is. But I think the big thing for everyone is to kind of reset, refocus. Remember, your kids are still kids, and you're still the parent. They still look to you. And it's funny because at the end of the night, my 13-year-old, who didn't want anything to do with me for, you know, two, three hours earlier, 
uh, at night, he's like, hey, Dad, you, can you come snuggle with me on the couch? And in that moment, I was like, okay, that's where we can have a, a good talk about something, you know. And so it's, it's kind of picking your spots, but making sure that they feel they can, they can trust you because you want them to report what's going on to you. Uh, you want them to tell you what's going on as opposed to, you know, the shrug the shoulders and say, oh, nothing, you know, because it belts. It's like a cup that fills. And obviously, as the case with, uh, with the girl on Chestermere, uh, it's unfortunate because it gets to the point where that cup is overflown. And, uh, you know, they feel like there's no one out there for them. They feel isolated. They feel alone. So I think um, the, the, the key messaging is uh, to let their kids know um, they're not alone. Uh, to let them know uh, that they can turn to you for strength and help. Um, you know, the old messaging of, oh, just suck it up and, or, 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 or fight back doesn't always work with kids. Uh, and, and, and that, you know, gets them to bottle up. Like, you want to be able to tell them things like stand up for yourself and, and defend yourself, but you also have to gauge the kid. Uh, you can't tell a, a child that's never had an aggressive bone in their body to all of a sudden, mm-hmm. you know, go attack a kid they, they won't know how to deal with that especially when it's even, done online right right and then they'll feel even more inadequate and they'll think well your solution is only to like let's say dad says well why don't you punch him in the face which is what we all used to hear when we were kids yes. well if the kid feels ill-equipped for that then they're going to feel insecure about telling their, their parent what's going on so it's really to try and understand your kid and and it, it takes a higher level of wisdom to be a parent and uh to to, to um to try and figure out the right solution for your kid. But, you know, the, 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 the main thing is to use resources. Uh, there's uh, the children's help phone that, that kids can use, especially, you know, once kids start having some technology of their own, which is, um, which is very, uh, it's anonymous, and they can go for advice. Teachers need to communicate with parents and vice versa and counselors to make sure uh, that there is a plan to help the child being hurt and to intervene in, in, uh, in terms of, uh, the bullying case, you know, in terms of people that see bullying, say something, get help. You don't necessarily have to step in and, you know, take a punch or, or, or be the, become the victim of the violence, but you can go get help. There's always an authority figure, especially when it comes to kids. There's always someone, whether it's a parent, a coach, a teacher, uh, you know, I, I think there's ways we can step up and not just watch. And unfortunately, we, we've, we've become a little bit of a culture that watches, uh, you know, watches the train wreck as it happens. But, you know, we also have to, um, you know, stop that behavior because, you know, we, we wind up with situations where this poor girl in Chester takes her own life. And I'm sure a lot of people knew what was going on mm-hmm. uh, in her situation. And, and a lot of people, uh, whether they like to admit it or not, uh, have a part to play in her ultimate and uh, tragic decision. Just a horrible situation all around. But uh, as you mentioned, communication is key and there are resources. Thanks, Randy. Well, appreciate you. Thank you for the time today. You bet. That is Randy Chevrier, anti-bullying advocate and former Calgary Stampeder. It's 818. Time for helicopter traffic for West District by Truman, Calgary's newest and best master-planned community. Still seeing that delay northbound Deerfoot between Barlow Trail and Southland Drive through the southeast. If you want to grab McLeod Trail instead, it's a little bit slow approaching the construction at Highway 22X or Stony Trail, but otherwise it's a smooth commute all the way into the downtown core. Over on the west side of the city, ring road construction continues at Sarcy Trail and Glenmore, so expect lane realignments and speed restrictions through there. And Crowchild Trail, overall not too bad, a little bit of a slowdown southbound approaching McMahon Stadium. Earn your MBA from Queen Smith School of Business right here in Calgary. Find out more 
at smithmba.calgary.com. For the 770 CHQR Traffic Helicopter, I'm Brady Howard.